decision makers within that system need to engage those who we think of as kind of like end users and end beneficiaries in order to make better decisions. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited about our conversations with really innovative thinkers in the world of transformative education. And today is no different. Um, today, we're actually going to be tackling the idea of systems thinking, and we've had this conversation before. But today, we have joining us um, Shara Kababa, um, who is with Substantial and just has a new book out called Closing the Loop Systems Thinking for Designers, which was just released here in 2023. So Cheryl, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat with you. Excellent. Um, so just to set a little bit of a context um, for all of our listeners, um, part of your work really is around sort of thinking about systems thinking um, and the leveraging of research and storytelling um, to benefit historically under-resourced communities. And you utilize the, the ideas tied to sort of systems understanding, systems thinking as a mechanism in which to really sort of talk about this equity-centered sort of approach um, that we globally are really digging into a lot of late. So let's start sort of the 100,000 foot view first and foremost for folks who might not um, fully understand what exactly is systems thinking and why should we care about this in education? Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of step back and kind of explain its relationship to what I do as a design strategist. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, a design researcher and design strategist by nature. That means the research that I do and the strategies I employ usually inform products and services um, within education, as well as investment strategies. So for example, when I'm working with philanthropies, or um, VCs that are investing in products for education, what we do is we use um, design thinking or human-centered design, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, um, to inform our practices. And what that means is that we try as much as possible to elevate student voice and teacher voice throughout the process. So engaging them through the human-centered design processes, understanding their context and challenges, and then um, engaging in participatory design with them. Um, and the angle that I employ in terms of integrating systems thinking with this is really not just thinking about, for example, the end user experience or who's buying products and services or um, ed tech. It's also trying to understand the system that surrounds those experiences. So essentially, what is educational policy and how does that have an impact on sort of these experiences that we're trying to design. Um, how do we serve um, 
all students to be able to succeed, including those from historically under-resourced or historically marginalized communities, um, to be able to have better educational outcomes? Um, And how do we understand and broaden who our stakeholders are throughout the process? So that not only includes students and educators within the design process, but also subject matter experts. For example, academic researchers who have a really good lens on, for example, the intersections of equity and education or technology and education and making sure that they are also stakeholders within the process because their knowledge runs um, super deep. And so it's essentially about like emphasizing the interconnectedness of all of these different stakeholders within the system um, with the goal of really trying to um, create more equitable products and services for education, as well as better serving those who have been underserved. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense, but it can be super confusing for folks kind of digging in. So can you give, can you give our listeners an example of a project and how you applied this? I think that will really help folks with some context pieces. Yeah, for sure. So um, I recently, my team and I at Substantial recently worked on a project with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, It was a grand challenge. So when they release grand challenges, these are sort of like challenges to the field to use innovation to solve specific problems. And this grand challenge was centered around Algebra 1 and how Algebra 1 is considered a gateway course in math for students to be able to be college ready um, eventually, and how those from really historically under-resourced communities, especially Black and Latino students in the U.S., um, tend to not, not be prepared for college because of the way they've been tracked into remedial math um, and other sort of systemic issues that affect their communities, lack of resources in their schools, for example. And it's really interesting working with a philanthropy or an investor because we can use human-centered design and systems thinking to help sort of inform the investment strategy. So um, you might have some investors kind of like come to the table by saying, okay, maybe tutoring is like the area that will really solve this. And we'll put out, you know, and basically like an RFP or like a grant um, into the field to be able to respond to it and say like, oh, I'm developing a product for tutoring. But what's nice is that the foundation recognized that that's only one lever, like that's only one avenue. And so in terms of like sort of a systems thinking approach is thinking about like, what are the different ways that could sort of disrupt this, these recognized challenges within the algebra one sort of um, process and ecosystem. And so when they put out the grand challenge, it wasn't just for a specific type of technology or a specific type of product. It was uh, uh, oriented around different levers. So it could be around, Um, teacher professional development. It was also around improving the relevance of Algebra 1 content so that it's more culturally responsive. Um, It was about building out 
further support systems for students. So tutoring could be part of that. Um, There could also be just like creative ways of like figuring out how, um, for example, community organizations can kind of contribute to math education. And putting out this call in kind of like this broad way allowed them to kind of think about the many different avenues um, by which to kind of make change and create impact within this space. And so that integrated this approach in which we interviewed and talked to a lot of students, like engaged them in participatory design. We also talked to educators um, and essentially kind of like co-designed these potential avenues for change with them. And yeah, now there are sort of several organizations that are being funded to carry through with this work. And that's kind of just one example of integrating both design thinking and systems thinking together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very powerful when you sort of think about the, the potential impacts that that type of research base really can have, um, especially when you we're thinking about how dysfunctional in many ways the current system of education is, um, very sort of outdated and outmoded in many ways, and yet there's incredible innovations that are happening all across the globe as it relates to education and systems, um, formalized systems of education, your, your work being a prime example of that. So um, it's just really, really intriguing to think about. How, how Cheryl can individual educators take these same sets of principles and apply them into their own individual practice? If you're sort of stepping back and recognizing that classroom teachers are participants in the same system you're studying, how does this distill down to that more personalized level? Yeah, one thing that I always kind of mention to folks who are kind of interested in taking more of like a systems lens to their work is think about the incentives of the different stakeholders within the system and try to understand that because that helps you kind of understand why certain decisions are being made outside of your purview, um, as well as helps you better understand like what motivates people and how to either optimize for that or interrogate it, right? And so, um, you know, teachers in the classroom, for example, like they get handed down and we hear this time and time again from teachers is like, suddenly like their school or their district is like, use this piece of software (laughs) or use this new LMS, use this, use that. And they're just like, I don't even know what this is good for. And I don't, you know, like no one's like really explained it to me. And I think it's like really interesting um, for people put in that position of being like, you're expected to use this, but you don't really understand why of understanding like how that might've happened to begin with. It's like, oh, there was probably an attractive deal made with, you know, the IT department of the district or something like that, that um, made it clear that, oh, this will work within your existing system. So therefore we'll, we'll have you adopt this instead of this. Um, and this happens all the time, like where, you know, teachers are like, they're feeling like a lack of autonomy in the classroom because they're just like 
being told to do this and this there, you know, and I'm not even talking about things like assessments and how those take place. Right. right? But just like, um, there's a reason I feel like every single teacher I've ever talked to through the course of our research, um, has said like, Oh, yeah, I use this like other piece of software. I use this app or what have you that, you know, I just use in my classroom, like no one else is using it. Or I don't know only a couple of other people are using it because it's, it's useful to me. And I'm able to like make things happen in the classroom that, um, you know, for which it has utility um, as well as like teachers paid platforms like teachers pay teachers where like they're kind of like they get creative on their own accord in terms of like how they're going to inform their own teaching their own um curricula so it's it's kind of like having an understanding of like maybe how decisions are being made at like the district level or even at like the policy level um help help you inform like how you might respond to those kinds of decisions that are being made outside your purview. Um, and it might actually kind of like help, like, I don't know, spur some like grassroots thinking in terms of like, okay, how do we create change, you know, at the classroom level and have that bubble up rather than kind of like the other way around. You know, that that's interesting. And I also wonder sort of the the what or the where with all, I guess it is, you know, as um as administrators, if you will, who are sort of having those same conversations at a different level, right? You know, it's intriguing to me where or how the sort of, not just the decision-making for, for, for the choice, I'm going to buy the software as the example that you provided, right? Um, but the conversations around how then to distill the decision-making, the information around the decisions themselves back down across that sort of system and the impact of the way, for example, those communications may or may not take place and how that then impacts the way folks think about how those those various decision pieces and points actually then apply to them or don't apply to them. And it, it does create an interesting dichotomy within the system itself, does it not? Um, I'm not sure because like, I, I think as long as you're like, as long as you're engaging your stakeholders in a way that's meaningful, I it shouldn't, it shouldn't, it should actually bring people together in a way in order to like engage in more shared dis- decision-making and sort of distribution of power. And I think that's why I don't just put it, put, I wouldn't just put the onus on teachers in the classroom, for example, to take a systems lens It's also on those who are administrators, those who are policymakers, those who are researchers um, and like and product developers as well. So I kind of put the onus on like those who kind of hold a lot of decision-making power to engage in the systems thinking lens even more readily than someone who is at kind of like the receiving end, who's most impacted like teachers and students um, and who probably at the moment feel like they have like the least power in terms of decision-making. But 
outcomes within the system are all really dependent on them and how they might perform. And so decision makers within that system need to engage those who we think of as kind of like end users and end beneficiaries in order to make better decisions. So this means product developers too, which we do a lot of work with like ed tech product developers because oftentimes you know, you think people who are developing ed tech products are engaging with like students kind of throughout the process. They're really not for the most part, um, even if they should be like testing it with them or what have you. Um, and the thing about it is they have, they feel like they don't necessarily have the best incentives to do that because it takes time and energy to do that. But one of the things that I argue as somebody who is like, you know, my background is in design thinking is like, do this work now before you completely build a product and pilot it and find out there's going to be all of these problems from the system's perspective once you kind of like deploy it into the field or deploy it with like a whole bunch of school districts or something like that. So engaging these folks early and often throughout the process before like investing a lot into your product helps you get better answers along the way. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and hopefully folks will actually engage, um, that way there's, there's nothing worse in my mind than a products that get designed and developed that that didn't have the appropriate level of influence and voice, um, in their design development. So let's circle back around a little bit, um, in terms of the way that you do your work. So I really want to ask questions about the research side of this, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this piece of it. And I think it's honestly one of the most intriguing components of it. So when you, you set out, when you set out to interact with and sort of help think about the the influences or systems thinking components of, for example, that Bill and Melinda Gates, the grand challenge. Um, So as you start sort of laying out sort of the process pieces that are going to happen, is the sort of research journey that you go down from your perspective as the system's um, thinker or engineer, depending on sort of which label you want to put on it. So the person like digging in and saying, here's how we're going to think about our function within this problem we're trying to solve. What, what are the elements that you sort of think about that are critically important to you as the researcher to be able to do your work? Yeah. So there's a couple of approaches that we pretty consistently take. Um, And I think this starts with like certain mindsets that we Mm -hmm. employ to begin with. So the first mindset is that we are intentionally engaging in equity centered design. So that's, um, I know some folks have heard of, for example, inclusive design, and it holds Mm -hmm. a lot of the same principles, which is thinking about those who have been historically excluded from the process of design and development. So, Um, and engaging them throughout the process of design and development. So it's kind of a correction for um, who normally gets left out of the process. And what that means is, for example, for the grand challenge that I described, we started that project by um, kind of like mapping who our stakeholders were going to be throughout the throughout the work of defining what the areas of focus would be for that grand challenge. So one, we sort of um, 
engaged a, a body of subject matter experts who many of them are academic researchers in the space of equity and education or um, program administrators within um, certain school districts who could kind of come to the table with like their experiences and their kind of knowledge about the system that surrounds this particular problem space of algebra one that we were investigating. Um, we then interviewed and talked to, um, you know, a, a couple dozen students and teachers kind of doing qualitative interviews with them and understanding their experiences within the space. And in terms of like our approach to equity center design, we're really focused on, um, those who are, yeah, typically excluded, but also from sort of historically under-resourced backgrounds. So that meant interviewing Black students and Latino students, um, multi-language learners, um, as well as um, other any other students like experiencing poverty and interviewing the teachers who um, teach those students. And so this sort of adheres to this concept of, um, you know, in design that is oftentimes called universalism, like in our work, we call it targeted universalism. So designing essentially for those who kind of have the most extreme experiences or maybe the most marginalized will help kind of like not just create better outcomes for them, but also create better outcomes for other students across the board. Um, so a good example from, let's say, I have an example from like just general like urban policy and then also an example from like product design. So like from urban policy, we think about things like curb cuts. So curb cuts were designed with those who um, are disabled and you know are using wheelchairs in mind, but it ends up serving pretty much anyone who mm -hmm. is using any form of wheel transportation, like whether you're walking alongside your bike or you're pushing a baby stroller yeah. or you're you're um, pulling a cart behind you is going to benefit all of these other people in terms of their um, context and circumstances beyond just those with the most extreme experience. Um, another all example. users are grateful for that. Curve yes, up, right? yeah. exactly. Um, I was thinking about another one the other day when I was kind of watching something on Netflix and it, and it's like, I'm always watching movies and TV shows with the subtitles on because mm -hmm. I have kids and there's just like, and pets, and there's just like so much noise in my house all yeah. the time that now this is just like how I watch things. And I was thinking about how like, yeah, this is initially started as like a policy, like as a design decision to right. serve those who um, are hard of hearing, right? And mm -hmm. so it's, it's really interesting to kind of think about things in that way. And so if we think about student outcomes and, um, you know, the research that kind of like informed that grand challenge was that Black and Latino students suffer from worse outcomes than other students because of all of these things that are happening in the system. And so understanding directly from them and their teachers about, you know, their perceptions of what's going on and also honoring that experience, right? By like mm -hmm. talking directly to students and sort of empowering them to talk about like, you know, what works and what doesn't work for them in the classroom. Um, it's like, it's really surprising how often 
you know, we'll talk to students even like middle, as young as middle school students. And they'll like, you know, we'll be like ending our interview with them. And they're kind of like, how do I get to do what you do? Because it's kind of like yeah. interesting <laughs> how do I get to talk yeah, to other exactly. students. Um, and so it's like, this is an important part for us in terms of like being an equity center design practice is mm -hmm. really kind of like finding ways where we're not just extracting from those who we're kind of engaging with and end users and end beneficiaries, but also like benefiting them in some way as well throughout the process. And the systems yeah. thinking lens comes in when we're kind of doing the analysis and we're not only kind of like synthesizing what we've heard from people, but we're also taking, you know, kind of systems frameworks. One that I use quite often is the iceberg diagram, which um, mm -hmm. some folks might be familiar with because yeah. it kind of identifies problems or things that you might see on the surface. And then you go layer by layer down and you try to identify patterns and trends, structure, and then mental models that sit at the bottom. And this is like really nice to kind of do with decision makers because it helps you understand where the levers are and how you're not just solving for like that one thing. You're not just solving for tutoring, right? That right. you right. see like there's a lack of tutoring that's visible to you. You can then solve as deep down as mental models, like why are, why is the system the way it is and how has the infrastructure been built to support that and try to address that as well. So yeah, that's kind of, I, I know that was a lengthy answer, but yeah, that's kind of, kind of like important aspects of our process. No. And I think that was incredibly informative and thank you for the illustrations kind of along the way that you, you were able to weave through that, because I think that was incredibly helpful. Um, and, you know, as, because at the end of the day, right, if we can get if we can get users across the selective set of systems, whatever we happen to be talking about, constantly thinking about the stakeholders, the users, the sort of interfaces and the interplays between all of these pieces, then we can we can actively engage in helping improve the systems that we're living within. And so just a, a, an awareness of the fact that these, these pieces are so integrated, super important. So I really appreciate the way you explained that. That's incredibly helpful, I think, for our listeners. I always try to, um, you know, think about the fact that, you know, our folks are coming and listening from all over the world. The majority of our listeners are, are educators in some capacities, whether they're classroom teachers or informal um, policymakers, um, administrators, you name it. Um, and one of the things that I always like to to sort of wrap our conversation is by asking our guests to really help us think about kind of what's next in the field or the space that they occupy. And so for you, I'm super curious, as a researcher, you've been at this for, for a, a, a pretty long time, um, and you've really dug deeply um, in this in a number of different ways, just based on the different elements from your, your career experience. What gets you excited or, or from a research standpoint, you know, sort of what are you thinking about as sort of those next sort of pieces or are, are, are components, I guess, if you will, um, within the world of education that you think are worthy of folks spending some time thinking about and really digging into? Yeah, I think it's like... Um there's there's a couple of things. Well, first, I, I kind of wanted to address some of the things that feel a little bit like red herrings to me, just like mm -hmm. in terms of like 
that intersection of like education and technology, I think we're talking a lot about um, large language models right now because of chat GPT and how it's going to affect education. And one thing I want to emphasize around that is just like, I think we need to think explicitly about how that intersects with equity in education. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think there's, there's definitely a lot of sort of excitement and thinking in that space around like how it can make education more efficient, how it can sort of, um, you know, benefit teachers. Um, There's also like the fears that it'll be like students won't write anymore. Like this will be writing for them. Um, And I have to say, like, I I do, like, recognize a little bit of, like, what feels like moral panic around, Mm -hmm. you know, chat GPT, but, um, or, you know, GPT and large language models. But um, I think, like, I feel like I'm not hearing enough conversation about how it might increase inequities and how it might create a bigger gap between those who are not only like creating these kinds of products and software and those who are going to have to use it, but also how it might create gaps within education, further gaps within education. Like how are there ways that, um, you know, the training sets for these models have been based on things like historical racism, um, Mm -hmm. historical discrimination. I mean, it really takes in everything. Right. right? And Mm so, um, I think we have to be really careful. Like I'm less worried about like the technology being coming sentient or what have you. And I'm more concerned (laughs) about like Star Trek's not really our future, right? (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't think so. Even though we have like those who have been like pioneers in this space, like really spelling out like gloom and doom about like general AI and things like that. I'm kind of like, I think we need to look at what's right in front of us is that there is, there are existing inequities that are um, based on our uses of technology. And this is just going to continue and exacerbate with some of these kind of like new AI products. Um, Ruha Benjamin, who, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on the name of her book? Um, I'm just like looking it up right now. Um, (laughs) But she, um, Race After Technology is a really good book that's oriented around like issues of equity and technology. And as we mm-hmm. continue working with emerging technologies, how, the questions we need to ask ourselves. Um, so this kind of intersection, I think I'm really excited about. I think there's there are more and more people who are paying attention to this, even specifically within the space of education. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm really excited about this idea of um, influential decision makers first of all i'm re- i'm excited about the idea of human centered design kind yeah. of you know it, it's growing popularity within education mm-hmm. because i think that helps empower certain people who have not been empowered throughout the process um and as a systems thinker i just feel like yeah that is a really great avenue to engage further like further extend your stakeholders within the process 
Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate that. Um, Thank you. Actually, it's interesting because um, last week I did an interview um, specifically about um, some of the AI components and the idea of whether or not in the future we're going to need a chief AI officer, for example, in industry, right? And so I just love the way you sort of really brought that piece of these conversations because they're, they're forefront. Educators are talking about this all over the place. And I love that you grounded that back into something that is really real that we should be thinking about and considering as opposed to this sort of pie in the sky that's all doom and gloom and oh my gosh, right? So thank you for that uh, because I think you really sort of brought that all back into perspective and made it um, real for us. And I, I, I'm grateful for that. But I also really appreciate um, the way you're, you're thinking about the the different elements and components where we can and should be utilizing sort of the, the power of our own um, internal research capabilities um, to think about systems moving forward. So um, I appreciate that as well. And, um, you know, Cheryl, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today and for the work that you're doing. And for those of you that are listening, please um, run out and grab a copy of Closing the Loop um, because because you'll get to, um, you know, sort of ingest more of Cheryl and all of the way she's sort of thinking about things in the future. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin. And join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.